The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Gospel of Mark, looking this evening at verses 7 through 21 and then skipping ahead to 31 through 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And we skip down to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. The founding fathers have been removed. I'm talking about from textbooks. At least that's what somebody was telling me this week from an article they had read, and no doubt many of us have read articles over the last few years about how the treatment of the founding fathers in textbooks is reduced more and more, and they're maybe put in a bad light and shown to be uh, negative in different ways in terms of owning slaves. But this person was saying that in many textbooks this year, they've been completely removed I have yet to determine whether that's true or not, but it would be very sad. One of the ways that we respect the founding fathers and the thing for which we respect them is their loyalty to this new nation that was being formed. Their allegiance that is seen in terms of the risk to their lives and 
properties that they took by signing the Declaration of Independence. We know that George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and men like that would have certainly been hanged for treason had they been captured. In fact, one of them reportedly quipped, we must either hang together or we will hang separately. I would like to bring out this idea of allegiance and loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ from our text because this text shows us a lot, both negatively and positively, what it means to become a disciple of Christ, to follow Jesus Christ in faith in Jesus, repentance, turning away from sin. What marks a genuine disciple? What goes into that? We want to consider that question the calling of Jesus to follow him from both looking at negative examples in our text and seeking to glean lessons from these negative examples and then looking at the positive example of Jesus' calling of the twelve that's contained in our text. And so we want to look at the negative examples first. Uh, Clearly, here we have a whole range of examples as Jesus bursts onto the scene in in Mark chapter 1 and begins conflict immediately with the established religious leaders and and so forth. And here we find the first negative examples to be the religious leaders termed the Pharisees by our text. And that is actually in the text before I started to read, but it's reflected in, in verse Seven, because Jesus withdraws. There's this conflict with the Pharisees in verses 1 through 6, which Tucker touched on last week about the issue of keeping the Lord's Day. And in verses 1 through 6, we see Jesus purposely heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees are watching him, and he is angry at them, and he's grieved because of them. And we find in verse 6... We find this conclusion to this particular segment, in fact, to all the five conflicts that have been part of this narrative in Mark. We find this concluding statement, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So the first negative example, the Pharisees rejecting Jesus out of self-righteousness. That's the main characteristic, I think, that we see out of the Pharisees' religious life. And they reject Jesus because they really have no need for a Savior. In fact, he completely messes up their plans for their religious lifestyle. The presence of Jesus was showing up many of these Pharisees for what they really were. They were hypocrites. In fact, Isaiah 29, verse 13 The prophet says that they serve God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And later on, Jesus will quote that very text in speaking of the the Pharisees. But here in verse 6, we find that uh, they began to to immediately plot with the Herodians. The Herodians is, is not a group that we hear of very often in the Gospels, but they're mentioned a few times. And the Herodians were loyal supporters of the puppet king, the Jewish puppet king under Rome, Herod Antipas. Uh, These would have been influential men who would have been supportive 
of the Roman occupation of Israel, seeing it uh, as part of the peace and stability of their own economic well-being. In other words, it was in their own financial interest that the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, would continue, even though it meant that their nation was under the heel of Rome. And, uh, of course, we know that this Roman peace was often disrupted in Israel by zealous Jewish leaders and rebels. In fact, we find that one of the 12 disciples is given that term, Simon the Zealot, that was probably speaking of his political affiliation. It's interesting, we have Matthew, or Levi the tax collector is one of the 12, who was certainly part of the system, making his money off Roman taxes and being able to skim his share of that. And then we have Simon, who was probably at the other end of the political spectrum from Matthew. These Herodians were certainly against whatever upstart, quasi-Messianic Jewish figure would rise up in the wilderness somewhere and disrupt the peace. And the Herodians would have wanted to stamp out all such movements, and they would have seen Jesus in that light. Well, after this conflict about the Sabbath, when Jesus certainly is exposing the Pharisees' hypocrisy, the Pharisees immediately go out and begin to hold counsel with the Herodians, these supporters of Herod. And it's interesting that here were these religious men deliberately planning to murder Jesus, plotting with the Herodians, but to do it legally in keeping with the Mosaic law. Don't we just look at that and shake our heads? We're going to commit murder, but let's do it right, and let's do it in a lawful way before our God. The irony here is the Pharisees, even that term connotes the separated ones, separated from the ordinary rank and file of sinners. They would have considered themselves above the normal sinners uh, that were out there on the streets. But here they were prepared to associate with and ally with the upper-class sinners, the Herodians, that was okay if that's what it took to get rid of Jesus. And Jesus knows that the Pharisees are mortally opposed to him, and he knows that they will stop at nothing to be rid of him. I think what we see in verses 6 and 7 here is that Jesus knew that his time had not yet come. He knew that the time of final confrontation still lay in the future. He knew that the cross still lay ahead of him. And so, what does he do? He withdraws. No doubt, part of the strategy of his withdrawal was it wasn't the right time to bring to a climax this conflict. And we'll see that theme go, continue throughout the Gospels until he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And he knows what's coming. It's a good moment as we think about the Pharisees and their loyalty and what they really followed to think about essentially the basic error of the Pharisaic mindset. We could categorize it under two aspects, an inadequate view of the holiness of God and an inadequate view of their own sin. Just think of that. 
This was a group of religious individuals who purported to worship and serve the living God. But this God that they purported to serve was the God of infinite heart-searching holiness. But the whole characteristic of the Pharisaic religion was what they were indicted for by Isaiah. They worshiped and served God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Isn't that a convicting truth? They didn't have a sense of the searching, holy character of the true God. And then when it came to looking at themselves, what an inadequate view of what we would call total depravity, the biblical view of our radical sinfulness, that every aspect of our being, our heart, our mind, our will, our affections, our emotions, all of that is affected by sin. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could possibly be. It means that every human being apart from Christ is thoroughly colored by his or her sin. And there's this innate self-centeredness even when we carry out our self-centeredness in a respectable way that society would think, well, that's fine. The Pharisees were experts at making themselves look good. They could pray long prayers on the street corners. They liked to be exalted like that. But only as we come to see the holiness of God and our own sinfulness can we rightly see our need for God's grace and follow Jesus Christ, trust in Jesus Christ, turn to Jesus Christ from any of our own sufficiency, turn away from our self-righteousness and cling to Jesus alone. And that's what the Pharisees refused to, to do. So our first negative example certainly shows us a lot about entrance to the Christian life. Have you turned from your sin, turned from your self-sufficiency, turned from any hope of saving yourself by your righteous deeds. If the Pharisees couldn't do it, I can guarantee you probably none of us wouldn't even come close to that in our own legalistic righteousness. But secondly, the next negative example, the crowds. The crowds, and I term this one, rejecting Jesus by seeking only his earthly benefits. Here we find a great crowd followed, verse 7, from, and then there are these mentioning of places from Israel proper and then from the borderline, borderlands around Israel proper. There's where we find Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. That's Israel proper. And then there's Idumea to the south, the far south, and then from beyond Jordan, That's the Transjordan across the Jordan to the east. And then from around Tyre and Sidon, the far northern, western areas along the coastline where Gentiles mostly live there. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Notice it doesn't say they heard what he taught or they heard who the person of Christ was or anything like that. They just heard what he was doing, these miracles. And this is the only mention in the Gospels of any of the four of them where we find that it's disclosed that Jesus had this tactic of avoiding the press of the crowd by having a boat handy, telling his disciples to get a little boat ready for him so that as the crowd pressed him, just think what that would be like. You know, you see these presidential candidates and you see them handled by the 
Secret Service, and you know, there's a crush of people around them, and most of us don't know anything about what being a celebrity would be like. You know, we kind of think, wouldn't that be cool to everybody love you? And really, when you read articles about what celebrity status is like, it's awful. No matter where you go, oh, look, look, there's John Light. Oh, maybe I can say hi to him. I don't have that problem very much at all. Dr. Rogers has that a little bit because he's a radio star, but not me. My point here is that these crowds came hearing what Jesus was doing And in chapter 1, we've already seen in Capernaum, Jesus withdraws. He goes to another place to preach the gospel. And part of that we saw is probably his sense that the crowds only want the benefits. And as we read through the gospels, this comes out again and again. The crowds want to be around him because he's, he's multiplying the fish and the bread. Or they want, uh, they think they're going to be earthly kingdom benefits now. And Jesus certainly healed them, cast demons out. And certainly, we're not saying that everyone in the crowd had that view. There was, there was wheat among the tares. But people are always attracted to the spectacular. People are always attracted to earthly benefits and earthly success. We naturally want to be around a celebrity. I've read that one of the great problems in the church in Africa is that there aren't enough pastors trained to disciple and teach and preach to the the millions who have come to know Christ in some way, but often they're quickly led astray to a, a cult. And there are major churches in Africa with thousands that go that are just led astray by the health and wealth and prosperity gospel, this teaching that if you give to this church and if you come here, then Jesus will bless you and you'll, you'll get rich, you'll be healthy, your life will go well. That's kind of along the lines that many in the crowd were attracted. They wanted the earthly benefits. And we need to examine our hearts and see if our commitment to Christ simply revolves around the benefits we might get. Maybe our church doesn't teach, thankfully, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, but uh, is there a sense of social status or just to be acceptable and to be going to a church somewhere? Those are dangerous things. Following Jesus means loyalty to Jesus, as we will see completely in every way. Well, a third group is not a human group. It's the demons. And I term this opposing Jesus even with right theology. The crowds are there, and we read in verse 10, he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. We've seen this again and again, that Jesus tells People, he's healed, don't make me known, don't tell anyone this, and that's disobeyed again and again. And here, he silences demons who are crying out, you are the Son of God. Why did Jesus silence them with such force? Their outcry was not a cry of faith, but a means of opposition, and probably a cry of despair as well. It didn't arise from true faith. No wonder James says the demons believe and tremble. James is talking about true faith. And he's saying the demons' faith 
expressed in the Gospels might have a right theology, but it wasn't genuine faith. Jesus would have nothing to do with their so-called confession. Why exactly they did this, there are different views. One commentator talks about it. It's an interesting view. He says that they addressed Jesus as the, as the divine Son of God in a futile attempt to render him harmless. This view is that uh, they're using his title or his name, Son of God, was designed to neutralize his power over them. According to that, uh, the magical idea or the magical tradition that the knowledge of someone's precise name or quality confers mastery over him. That's an interesting view, kind of a magical view that if they said this, uh, maybe it would uh, stop his power over them. Someone else has said that their, their cry aimed at somehow destroying Jesus' power and his influence over them, possibly by somehow suggesting by their confession an association between them and him. In other words, they were those who truly knew him and recognized him. There was this association that the rest of the, cr- the crowds didn't know him, but they did. And, and so somehow that was trying to be used. But Jesus would have none of it. And certainly, some of the reason that he silenced them was in part his restraint in not letting them speak because his divine sonship would eventually be linked to the cross, to his yet-to-be-accomplished suffering. And he had to die on the cross. That was still to come. They would have none of that. They didn't understand that. And the point that I would make here is to rightly confess the Son of God includes confessing him as your Savior. You can't know him without knowing him through his cross. The demons knew him in a sense, but it wasn't the cry of faith. They believed, but they trembled. It's possible to reject Jesus Christ even while you hold a right theology. Jonathan Edwards railed against that in his church in Northampton, about people who had right theology, but there was no fruit of a walk and a love for Jesus Christ in their lives. These demons had a right theology, but they had evil hearts through and through. Makes us tremble within the church. Those of us who are raised in the church, who attend church all the time, it's a dangerous thing to have right theology if our theology is divorced from our hearts. And so it's another example, a negative example of rejecting Christ. Well, the final negative example is Jesus' family, his natural family that we read about here, his mother and brothers. And I term this one rejecting Jesus because of other loyalties. It's interesting here we find that after the discussion of the 12, in verse 21, Mark mentions they're at this home and the crowd's there, and he says in verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Mark introduces the theme of his family here and their view of him, and then he divides that 
with this discussion of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and he comes back to it. It kind of, one commentator suggests that that gives you the sense of some passing of time, that, that uh, he's, he introduces it to let you begin to think about it. And then in verses 31 to 35, he goes into it in more depth. So there are almost, you could say, two phases of, the, of this narrative about the family. But isn't it interesting, in verses 31 and 32, we find his mother and brother, finally, they're outside the house. There's a crowd inside. And what probably happens is something like what happens when you see someone with their lights on, and one of us are up front here, and someone brings a note. Or if it were really crowded here, you might not even be able to, uh, and they, they might not have had anything to write on. It would be more like whisper down the alley. Hey, tell the people up there, um, Jesus' mother and brother are here. Okay. And they passed it in, and it spread from the outside to the inside. And you can just hear the last line on Whisper Down the Alley. You can hear it now. Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside, and you need to see them now. Uh, it's interesting. We know that Jesus wouldn't have been surprised at this point about the unbelief of his brothers. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 3, we find that as Jesus is preparing to go to the feast in Jerusalem, we find it said, so his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. His brothers didn't believe in him at this point. His mother, we're not so sure about where she was. One commentator suggests giving the mother a slight bit of a break, giving Mary a break. He put it this way, It is not necessary to suppose that Mary also suspected that Jesus had lost his grip on reality. That might have been the case. But he says, More likely we could see this as a case in which her faith was not sufficient to resist the determination of her sons to restrain Jesus and bring him home. But she was with them. We don't know exactly where her heart was. Certainly, Mary's a wonderful example earlier on when Jesus is born and all that. that. And certainly his mother and father, his father was most likely deceased at this point. Everyone believes that. And when Jesus was 12 years old and temple. We know that interchange and what took place there, and certainly they stored these things up in their heart. But here they come with this concern, and their concern was that they thought Jesus was mentally unstable. They confused zeal for the glory of God with mental instability, and they wanted to take him home and take care of him. And Jesus responded, really, in what we might think is a pretty harsh way, where he, told, he tells them, who are my mother and brothers? And he talks about that eventually, and he says, those who do my father's will. Well, look at that. But Jesus was not breaking the law's requirement here of honoring your parents. He was teaching about the call of the gospel and how that call may very well cause divisions, even divisions among family members, even the closest natural relationships of life. 
Jesus rightly honored his parents. In fact, in John chapter 19 on the cross, you know that beautiful scene where Jesus says to his mother, Woman, behold your son, speaking of the apostle John. And to John, he says, Behold your mother, making provision for his mother's care. Jesus was always fulfilling the law of God. Yet Jesus was not being overly harsh here because he knew that even family unity, even family loyalty does not take precedence over the highest loyalty to God himself and to the gospel. Our highest loyalty must always be to our commitment to God's will, to God's kingdom, to God's family, to God's agenda spelled out in his word for us. And Jesus was teaching an important lesson on discipleship here. No ties of natural affection or family loyalty must ever take precedence over commitment to Jesus Christ. Think of the far-reaching implications of that. Probably all of us have had some experience of that in our lives with family, with immediate family, maybe with extended family. I remember the first extended family Christmas when I was 18, and we'd been going to family get-togethers on that side of my family for years. It wasn't Christmas Eve. It was even that Christmas time of the year, and there was a gift exchange. And I just remember I had 18 cousins on that side. And we were all about the same age. We used to play at the, at the farm together. And I just remember my stumbling attempts to talk about my newfound faith in Christ. All of us went to church, but nobody was taking that seriously. And just being somewhat embarrassed, being stumbling, trying to talk to some of my cousins about my faith in Christ and really being largely ignored and thought to be strange. It was, in a sense, bringing a little bit of a sword into my natural relationships. All of you, I'm sure, have experienced that in some way or another. Whatever might be your, we might say, natural relationship to Jesus Christ. Maybe a lot of you have been raised in Christian homes But I know that many of you have taken the step of leaving denomination that may not be faithful to God's word, leaving uh, a church that may not be holding to the truth of Scripture. Of course, there are extreme instances of this that we read about, the great hardships we hear of people coming to Christ in Muslim nations and having to go into hiding because of the honor-killing system, the idea that it is lawful to carry out an honor-killing for someone who comes to Jesus Christ and rejects Islam. Typically, their very lives are threatened. It may be the kind of other extreme that we could apply this. It may be that by virtue of your birth and upbringing, you have a natural relationship to Jesus Christ. You're a child of the covenant. It's expected that you would profess him. Even that natural relationship to Jesus Christ is not enough. You must personally embrace loyalty to Jesus Christ. You must submit to him as your personal Savior and Lord. You can't just go ahead with that by virtue of your parents' faith. And often, young adults face a time of great testing when they go off to college or begin their jobs and move out of home and begin to be more a part of the wider world And their faith is tested by that calling to be loyal to Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is teaching us in this section the costliness of following him. Jesus and his kingdom must come before even our own families. And it's interesting how Luke puts it in Luke chapter 14 where Luke is describing this cost. Luke 14:25, the same thing is occurring here in Luke's gospels gospel. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them. So there were the crowds, and he turns and says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Powerful words. Teaching of the costliness of following Christ has a great encouragement to us as well, to all who have counted the cost of following it. Christ. Jesus tells us, and because he speaks these words, and he looks to the crowd around him, and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Those who trust in him, those who submit to his lordship, are his brothers and sisters. What greater privilege could there be than to be made a part of the family of God. And what a great joy it is. You think of Jesus' brothers at this point. We know that at least James comes to faith in Christ. The the earthly brother James, his half-brother, comes to trust in him and ally himself with him and bow before him eventually. We find him in the book of Acts. But think of what it is to have your eyes opened to the glory of Jesus. The disciples had followed him. They saw a glimpse. They they knew something of who Jesus Christ was, and it would be revealed to them more and more. What a great miracle of new birth it is to have eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, our King. Well, that's where we move into then the positive examples, and the positive example I have is the example of the twelve. We're not going to have different ones here. We're just looking at them, at them as a group. And you think, wouldn't it have been wonderful? Wouldn't it be interesting to know what these 12 were like? We're given a glimpse. You know, that some of them, some highlights about them are spoken. The zealot, we read about that. We read about James and John, th- sons of thunder. Just think. We think Peter's kind of the one who, you know, steps right in before he even thinks. What must the interaction have been between Peter, James, and John, the inner three, we would say? But here were these, these men, chosen by Jesus Christ, having left all to follow him. And he selects this group of 12 to share his life during his ministry years in a special way. And no doubt, the number 12 and that choice of 12 was symbolic of of. Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is advancing his kingdom. He is building a new Israel, we would say. In fact, isn't it wonderful to think that the the choosing of the 12 and the calling of the 12 to be apostles was the beginning of an evangelistic campaign which would eventually lead to you and to me being included. That's how God's worked through the ages, as the gospel continues to go out. But what were the two main elements of their apostleship here? Think about this. One was that they might be with Jesus. Verse 14, 
And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Why did Jesus want them with him, to be close to him, to wake up near him every day as they traked around Israel? Well, we could say, in one sense, for Jesus' own sake, as to his human nature, it is right to say that Jesus needed them. Jesus rightly needed to be fully human, which means that he was made for human friendship, for human companionship, for human loyalty. It is never good for man to be always alone, Genesis says. Jesus would have rejoiced over the close bonds of their friendship. He would have loved them. He would have taught them. We know that's the case. We know that he, he bore with them in their many sins, and he grieved over mistakes and problems. And th- they broke his heart in one sense because they abandoned him and one betrayed him. He would have rebuked them and exhorted them and corrected them. So for his own sake, he chose the twelve, but... We would say even more so, he chose them for the sake of the twelve and for the wider calling of the church, the blessing of the gospel going out. Only by being with Jesus would they be able to fully know him and so be able to fulfill the task of bearing witness to him. They had to be with him. They had to know him as best as they could. Only by being with Jesus would they learn all that they needed to learn by being fully exposed to the powerful and amazing influence of Jesus' life and ministry and glory, veiled as it was. Think of this power as it's later expressed in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are dragged before the council, the Sanhedrin, and that interesting statement is made after they make their defense. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. How do you get the knowledge that they got? They were with Jesus The leaders were amazed at the disciples' wisdom, and especially, I'm sure, their knowledge of Scripture. Yet these were unlearned men. They had never formally studied theology. We were having interaction because of a relative this week with a cardiologist in the area, the heart group, and learning about all these medications, about high blood pressure and everything, and uh, studying these things and looking online and reading it. What if I talked to that cardiologist, the head of the heart group, and asked him questions that astounded him. What if I knew the medications better than he did? And he said, John, how do you know all this? Well, maybe if I grew up, you know, the son of a cardiologist, and he talked shop every day, you know, at every meal, maybe I'd know it. But there was no way, there's no way I could do that. I I only, you know, we, we tried to understand these things this week. We didn't, we didn't know much about it. The disciples must have just amazed the religious leaders. They knew the Scriptures because they had been with Jesus. They had this wisdom that the, the Jewish leaders couldn't refute because they had been with Jesus. And I would just like to draw an application to all of us from that point. The power of their lives, the power of their ministry flowed out of being with Jesus Christ. Now, they were with him because he physically was present with them, but 
You and I know, I hope you know, that that is possible for us to be with Jesus as well. I love the way 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though not having seen him, you love him. And Peter goes on to talk about that inexpressible joy. Though not having seen him, he's writing to people who weren't physically with Jesus, who never physically saw him with the eye of sight, but they love him. And I hope that you know that by means of the word of God, hearing God's voice in his word, by means of prayer, having God's ear, speaking to the Lord, meditating on his word, responding really to his word in prayer, by the power of the Holy Spirit who mediates to us the presence of Jesus Christ, by being part of the body of Christ, the church. These are the fundamental means that God's given to you and to me to be with Jesus. Let us not forsake these things. Let us give ourselves to these things. Let us seek to be with Jesus that we might have better life and power to make him known. But the other aspect of their apostleship, other than being with Jesus, was in verse 14 as well, that he might send them out to preach. And we know the meaning of apostle is sent one. And then in Mark chapter 6, he will begin to do that. Jesus sends them out to begin to preach and to do miracles. And in a longer term sense, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, their goal was to certainly preach the gospel then and to be instruments by which the scriptures of the New Testament were given to us, to go into the world as preachers of the gospel. And there are some aspects in which the ministry of apostles was unique. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Nobody can claim that now. And we know that they they were accompanied by miraculous signs. In fact, in 2 in Corinthians 12, 12, the apostle Paul speaks about the signs of an apostle were done among you, were manifest among you. Paul clearly viewed these miraculous signs as limited to the apostolic era. They, they confirmed the revelation being given as the New Testament was given. And we see a note of that here as Jesus calls them and appoints them to go out, to be sent out to preach. And verse 15 says, an authority to cast out demons, showing that the kingdom of God has come. An indicator that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, 1 John 3, 8. And the application I think we can draw for us is that Jesus' pattern for his apostles, in one sense, continues. Even though there's a unique aspect to their ministry that we don't have, Jesus' pattern for his apostles continues for all his disciples. He calls us to be with him in order to send us out to others, to be bearers of the gospel. In whatever way we are able to do that, we are sent as well to spread the good news. What a beautiful example of loyalty, of following Jesus Christ, of submitting your life to him, and so being used by him. Jesus calls people to follow him in the way of true discipleship. The works of the kingdom still seem foolish to the world. We saw all the opposition. We saw the Pharisees. We saw the minds of the crowds. We saw spiritual opposition and demonic forces allied against Christ. We saw even family members, natural family members, blind to the truth of Scripture. Have you responded with loyalty to Jesus, repentance, and faith? 
You know, one of the founding fathers that's getting a lot of rave reviews these days is Alexander Hamilton. Maybe you've read something about his life, but it's interesting. He's not only on our $10 bill, but he was the only founding father who wasn't a native of the colonies. He was a native of the West Indies and came as a penniless young man in his late teens to New York. In many ways, became the most loyal of all because he was so committed to the United States. He didn't have a particular state that was primarily where he was born and grew up and everything, so he wasn't so much loyal to a state. He was loyal to the Union, to the United States, and he did a lot. He had weaknesses as well, but he always loved and valued his adopted country. Well, you and I are citizens of heaven. Yes, we're citizens of earth, Yes, we have to pray for our our nation and vote and do all these things, and it's election year, I know that. But are you a citizen of heaven? Have you come to submit to Jesus Christ? It's almost like Alexander Hamilton physically coming from the West Indies, arriving at New York. What an experience that was for him. It changed his whole life. And so it is for you and for me. We are born of this world, but are you born of the Spirit Are you following Jesus Christ? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the example of the 12 who laid down their lives for the gospel. We thank you for ordinary people throughout the gospels. We see pictures of them again and again. We see portraits of them coming to an understanding that this is the Son of God and the Son of Man. Lord, give us that faithful loyalty and allegiance to you alone. For many of us who are seeking to live out that calling now in our lives, put your finger on, by the power of your Spirit, put your finger on the places where we need to submit places to you. Let there be nothing that we hold back. You are our God, and we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.